Good evening, everyone. My name is Robin Mansell. I am Deputy Director and Provost of the School, and I welcome you all to this event, which is, and I'm very pleased to announce it, the official launch of the LSE Business Review. Do you all know what that is? <laughs> it's also an occasion to hear from st some distinguished pa panelists who will be talking to you on the subject of how can the UK improve productivity and still build a workforce, a hugely important topic. I will leave um, to my colleague, Professor John Van Rienen, the job who will be chairing it, the job of introducing panelists. Before that, I just thought I'd say a couple of words about what is the LSE Business Review. The LSE Business Review um, is an attempt by the school to improve the way it communicates with business. We know that we have, as a school, enormous impact on government policymaking, on the third sector, building on our research, evidence-based research, to influence all sorts of decisions. But as, over the last couple of years, as we have collected what we call impact case studies, we discovered, partly due to the work of another colleague, uh, Professor Dunleavy, that we don't actually have as much connection with business and as much influence as we certainly would like to have. After all, we are in the center of London. So fortunately, um, the ESRC, which funds social science research, has something called an Impact Accelerator Grant. And our Impact Accelerator Grant is what is enabling us to launch the LSE Business Review. We have enormous success with blogs and social media as they um, communicate with all sorts of constituencies, not only in London, but in the United Kingdom, in Europe, and globally, in areas which are not necessarily concerned with business, issues of productivity, issues of the growth of economies, all of these kinds of issues, entrepreneurship, business. These are issues which are addressed not only by economics in the school, but by many departments across the school. Believe it or not, from media and communications to politics to social policy, we have a whole wealth of research that can be brought to the attention, I think, of business decision makers if and only if it is brought in a way which is self-consciously attempting to communicate with very busy people out there in the world. So the blog is run by the LSE Public Policy Group, which provides a kind of a neutral home in the school for this um, new development. And of all of the family of blogs of the school, we attract over 200,000 visitors a month, which is pretty good. It's an achievement which has won a prize from the UK Times Higher Education Leadership and Management Award for improving knowledge exchange and impact on society. And that, after all, is what LSE is really here for. We run this blog on the basis of a number of academic editors, but we call from contributions from people not only from the school, but externally as well. And if any of you take a look at this blog, I think you will see that it has a whole range of really interesting topics, which are not only topical, but they are based with links into research throughout the school, which allows people to dig deeper if they want to. And so I am really proud tonight to um, officially launch this blog and to congratulate all those who've been involved in developing it and taking it forward. And I very much look forward to listening to the panel debate on issues of productivity. So with that, 
Thank you, and I turn over to my colleague, John. Okay, so thanks very much, Robin. Um, so my name is John Van Rien, and I'm, you know, very, I'm the, very glad to be um, the chair of the event tonight. I'm, the, uh, I'm a professor of economics here at the LSC. I'm also the director of the Centre for Economic Performance. Um, what we're going to do is um, we're delighted to have uh, Vince Cable, who is going to give, I'll introduce him more formally to you in a second, he's going to give a, a, something like a 20-minute presentation on productivity and, some, and, and his new book. And then we'll turn over to our distinguished panel, who will, I'll introduce them as they speak. They're each going to speak for around about five minutes, and then we'll open it up to a more general Q&A on the, on the floor. Um, I think this general issue that we want to debate on where the UK stands on productivity is extremely important. I mean, in terms of economics, um, the growth of productivity is probably, one of, probably the most important thing in the long term because it determines the growth of people's wages. And, you know, that's extremely uh, important in terms of material well-being. And then from a British point of view, um, it's rather worrying. If you look at the most recent productivity numbers in the UK from released about six weeks ago by the ONS, um, British output per hour worked, which is a standard measure of labour productivity, is about a third lower than it is in the United States, France and Germany, which is uh, you know, a remarkably large and uh, depressing gap. And uh, the even worse news is that things have been getting worse since the financial crisis. So, you know, if you look at what's happened since uh, 2008, productivity is more or less flatlined. And, you know, compared to the trend growth from 1979 up to the crisis, where something like, you know, we can argue about depending on trends, something like 14% below where we would have expected on pre-crisis trends. So that's... That's the kind of hole we're in, and part of what we want to do tonight is to think about ways to dig ourselves out of that hole, what kind of policies we could pursue to do that. One bit of good news on this, that I, you know, I, I worked on the LSE Growth Commission, some of you have got that, is that there was actually improvements in productivity in the three decades leading up to the Great Recession. Britain, Britain actually bridged some of the gap with our major uh, peer countries. So I think you know, that arguably was related to some of the policy changes which took place. And I think you know, that, um, you know, those lessons lead us to believe that policies can actually change productivity and improve, improve, well, improve our well-being. And I hope we debate some of those tonight. Okay, so without further ado, I'll introduce uh, Sir Vince Cable. Um, I'm sure you all know him. He needs a very little introduction. He uh, studied economics in Cambridge and in Glasgow. He was an economic advisor to the Kenyan government and the Commonwealth Secretary General in the uh, 1970s and 1980s. He was a lecturer in Glasgow University, a founding member of the SDP. He was chief economist of Shell between 1995 and 1997, and I suppose um, more well-known to you because he was the MP for Twickenham between 1997 and 2015, and the, um, the Secretary for State in the Department of Business, Innovation and Science between 20 and 2015, when I, I first... Uh, got to know him better, particularly around my work with the, the Growth Commission. So he's really an ideal person to speak on these matters. His book, which signings will be outside, if you're, I'd recommend you, like myself, buy a copy. Um, you know, the book is full of you know, fascinating insights into Britain's position, and I hope he'll share some of those with us tonight. So, Vince, thank you. Well, thank you for 
uh, asking me and giving me an opportunity to talk about uh, what I've published. Um, I mean, as it happens, the the book that I've written, which is called After the Storm, rages um, a long way beyond the agenda which we've set for this evening, which is about UK productivity issues. Uh, it was an attempt to produce a sequel to a book I wrote back in 2008 when I was the shadow chancellor for my party in Parliament, trying to understand what happened during the banking crisis. I mean, economics was actually not terribly prepared for it. Um, much of the prevailing theory about efficient markets uh, led in the wrong direction. Uh, many of the people who genuinely had understood how financial sectors can explode, um, like uh, Hyman Minsky and Kindleberger and others were not widely known in the literature. I found some of the best um, explanations for what was happening in 19th century literature by people like John Stuart Mill. But I wanted to come back to this subject seven years later, uh, having seen you know, the aftermath of the crisis, having been in government uh, dealing with some of its consequences as one of the two uh, economic ministers in the coalition government. But I want to narrow down what I'm talking about tonight to the issues which we, which we set an agenda, which I think are very well summarised in the work that was done in the London School of Economics, Professor Van Rieden and his colleagues, um, around the so-called Growth Commission, uh, in which it highlights uh, three major areas, skills, innovation, and infrastructure. Uh, and I was responsible in government for two and a half of these, uh, so I think I should dwell a little bit on where I think we now are in terms of the policy debates in those areas. But I want to add on some observations about other areas which I think have become much more salient since the financial crisis. Um, sorry, this is not about growth accounting. I think I've pressed the wrong button. Um, so don't worry about growth accounting. Uh, one of which is the distortions introduced by the property market another of which are the weaknesses um, of bank lending, particularly post-crisis, but over a long-term period. And then thirdly, the, the overall structure of policymaking, which in Britain, mainly because of the way that the equity markets function, have been consistently short-term in their perspective. And how, how do you impose a more long-term framework on decision-making in relation to growth and productivity? So that's what I want to talk about. Let me just start with skills. As I was the Secretary of State with overall responsibility, I think we're all very conscious that compared with many other developed economies, the UK has underinvested in skills. We have large uh, shortages, certainly in particular areas, in engineering, computer science, specific uh, vocational skills in the construction industry and elsewhere. And there is a general understanding, and the empirical work of the OECD and others have demonstrated that countries that invest in skills tend to produce a high return, and relatively high productivity levels and growth. Now, the issue which I and my colleagues had to confront was how do you invest in skills in an environment of austerity when public finance is highly constrained? I mean, we can argue about the austerity debate and whether you sh we should be doing more or less of a different time horizon. But if public finance is highly constrained, 
how do you support skill investment in the optimal way? Uh, the big controversial decision that we made in government, and some of you in this audience will be affected by it, uh, was the decisions about financing universities, uh, introducing significantly higher levels of so-called tuition fees. Actually, it's a form of graduate tax, but, but we called it tuition fees. Uh, massively controversial, highly unpopular, uh, did an enormous amount of damage to my party, but the practical consequence of it and the intention uh, was to ensure that universities had a flow of income uh, to maintain quality teaching and research and indeed to expand. And in terms of those objectives, I think our objectives were achieved. But the, the, the issues that I was wrestling with uh, as a cabinet minister were slightly different. I mean, we, once we'd got that big, awful decision out of the way, the, the, the decisions were somewhat different. If, you're, if you have a problem of scarcity of resources, you're trying to look at opportunity costs, is the most sensible thing to do to produce more and more people through higher education, more and more graduates, option one, Option two, to concentrate on higher level technical skills, whether or not they're graduates, uh, or is it to expand um, uncertified further education? And what was very clear in government, and I, I actually was a, in a minority of one on this, but the, the, the very strong views of my senior colleagues, uh, the Prime Minister, the Chancellor, Mr. Nick Clegg, and David Willits, who was my university minister, is that the priority should be given to expanding the higher education sector and the number of students. And the government made an executive decision to remove constraints on university expansion probably the biggest decision we made affecting universities, there is now no quantitative limit on student numbers. And some universities are expanding very rapidly as a result. My view is that actually that's bad policy. Uh, I was never persuaded by the evidence. I think this was correlation rather than causation type of issue. Uh, and I think as a country, we are very, very seriously underinvesting in something that is arguably much more important, which are skill level four, five, six, uh, vocational skills, uh, where we have chronic supply shortages, but lack of prestige, uh, and simply producing more graduates, including people who would otherwise have practiced, say, nursing without a degree, didn't seem to be to be a very good use of resources. But that's an open question. Uh, and one of the things I fought against in government, partially successfully, but partially unsuccessfully, was an, a very strong institutional bias against further education. I mean, I suspect it's simply true that the, the administrative elite in the UK and the treasury in the upper ranks of the uh, civil service probably have no idea what a further education college actually does, and they've probably never been in one. But these are colleges which take uh, responsibility for trying to upgrade the skills and qualifications of uh, school leavers who've never been to university. And my priority in government was actually to preserve and support the FE sector as far as possible. But that was one of the big policy dilemmas. So it remains so. Do you concentrate on further education, advanced vocational skills, or university expansion? 
The other big issue we grappled with in government, and this gets us into very emotional territory, was immigration and how far is it sensible and right uh, to meet skill requirements from overseas. Essentially, the big tension which we had in the coalition government was that the Conservatives had a political objective to demonstrate that they were controlling immigration and set a target, um, net immigration of 100,000 a year, which is actually about a third of what we currently have, um, in order to demonstrate that they had this problem under control. The problem with that target was that Uh, There were several key variables, notably the number of British people emigrating, or the number of people coming into the UK from the European Union, over which government has no control. And so the the whole focus of control was on two categories, one of which were overseas students, which by and large are not immigrants and don't stay, but do contribute to uh, the country's economy, and highly skilled workers. And we had bizarre situation where often you know, people with very advanced skills um, from India or China being turned away at the border as potential asylum seekers uh, when these were skills and or entrepreneurial talents of which were in very scarce supply. But the big issue which has continued under this government probably more intensely is how far you accommodate um, high levels of immigration in order to meet domestic skill shortages or Alternatively, do you put up a barrier to the import of skills in order to force training within the domestic economy? I was very much for the liberal approach to this, but this is an ongoing debate. So those are some of the topical arguments that we had in relation to skills. Let me just turn to the second, which is infrastructure provision. I think it is generally accepted that we have had chronic underinvestment in the UK in basic infrastructure, whether it's transport, broadband, um, energy, um, and the other sort of big capital-intensive in infrastructure sectors. The big dilemma in government was what should be the role of government in funding infrastructure. And uh, this is an area where, and, and I discuss this at some length in the book, uh, I had quite fundamental disagreements with conservative colleagues in the coalition and indeed with the Treasury view. The the, the Treasury view was that um, when we're reducing the deficit on the budget, the deficit is all government borrowing, including capital spending. There was a narrower definition, which is what we embarked upon in the uh, early days of the coalition, that the priority in managing fiscal policy was to deal with the the so-called structural deficit in the current budget. In other words, the gap between tax and spending, which had been opened up uh, as a consequence of the financial crisis. But what gradually prevailed during the coalition government, and is now quite explicit, is to treat capital and current spending in exactly the same way and subject to the same overall constraint. One of the key influences, intellectual influences on the Treasury, was the work of Reinhardt and Rogoff, you will have come across, subsequently uh, rather undermined, but nonetheless a a powerful um, message that there is a certain level of government borrowing, 
and you should not go beyond that because you then trigger um, lack of confidence in uh, the government, government securities. Now, we're now in a position where government borrowing is very, very highly constrained. This is one of the central objectives of George Osborne to reduce overall government borrowing to zero by 2019-20. And as a consequence, uh, public investment is very highly compressed. Very little of it's happening. And this has two practical consequences, one of which is a large amount of infrastructure investment simply isn't happening. And the second is that um, highly expensive forms of finance are being used. Uh, it would be possible under current conditions for the government to borrow in international capital markets at very, very low interest rates. I mean, we are in an extraordinary environment at the moment, which uh, there was a, a wonderful paper which some of you will have come across by Andrew Haldane, looking at interest rates over the centuries and concluding that current long-term interest rates are lower than at any time since the Babylonians. I mean, we have the, partly a consequence of policy, quantitative easing, partly a consequence of a big structural overhang of excessive savings in relation to investment, driving down interest rates to very low levels. The opportunity that provides for governments is to borrow cheaply in order to build infrastructure. But the government has forswore that, is not doing it, uh, and as a result, in my view, a, a very big opportunity for infrastructure renewal is being lost. So that, I think, is the key issue on infrastructure policy. Just let me say, in, in the relatively short time I have, to say a little bit about a few other areas, one of which is the problems which exist in relation to funding um, small, medium-sized companies and the lack of ability of the banking system to do this properly. There's a long argument in the UK going back to the 1920s that small, medium-sized companies, which in many ways are the productivity drivers, they're the sort of innovative companies, have difficulty raising finance to expand, and that the banking sector has been very reluctant to lend to them. This was greatly accentuated by the financial crisis. Banks became more conservative, generally. Uh, the regulatory system was heavily skewed against business lending. A bank typically would have to set aside five times as much capital for a business loan as it would for a domestic mortgage. So businesses have found it very, very difficult to raise capital for um, expansion. The problem has become significantly worse. Uh, what I tried to do in government to redress this uh, is we got uh, a billion pounds from the Treasury uh, to start what we call the British Business Bank that's done quite a lot of innovative work in creating new, uh, for example, internet platforms for business lending, peer-to-peer -peer loans, um, which are expanding quite rapidly, relaxing some of the regulatory conditions for new banks so you're getting more uh, new innovative banks, though this is quite difficult to uh, move. You know, banks do require a minimum scale in order to set up a, a clearing system, for example. But nonetheless, uh, partly as a result of the business bank, we do now have more innovative small-scale lending. The bigger question, which is what I want to leave you with, is whether we have a much deeper, bigger problem with the British banking system that the banking sector is simply too big. 
you know, we have a very, very large uh, banking sector in relation to the economy. Banking balance sheets are probably about five times GDP, something of that order, uh, significantly higher than in the United States or Germany. And my argument, which I develop in the book, is that it's, it, it's heavily distorted the way in which the banking system functions. Um, it's a little bit like an enclave economy in a developing country. You know, just imagine a, a kind of oil refinery in Nigeria. You know, advanced technology, um, you know, world-class technology very often, but at the other side of the barbed wire fence, you've got <coughs> relatively underdeveloped Africa using very different technology. And the British banking system, because it is very largely concentrated on... Uh, big global banks or offshore banks based in London simply has never developed the uh, system of um, engagement with small, medium-sized banks in the hinterland, which you need for productive investment. In sharp contrast with what's happened in Germany, where you have a highly decentralized Sparkassen and regional banking system, or in the United States. And although we've begun to address that problem through the business bank, that it seems to me that that big structural problem remains. And I argue, and I know it's controversial, and Bronwyn may want to contradict this, I, I, I actually think that the British banking sector is simply too big relative to the rest of the economy. Uh, the, the fourth issue just, just briefly touch on, and I, I think probably the biggest area of policy failure in the UK at the moment, indeed for quite a long period of time, is what's happening in the property market in relation to housing. Now, you can approach this from all kinds of different standpoints, but putting, you know, putting this very crudely in aggregate terms, uh, at the end of the financial crisis, or 2009-2010, um, house uh, construction in the UK got down to about 100,000 a, a year. It's now gone up to about 130. Most estimates, um, independent estimates, are that we probably require something of the order of 270 to 300,000 a year to maintain some sort of equilibrium in the housing market. There's a vast gap between estimated demand or potential demand, obviously you need the liquidity to purchase property, but the potential demand and supply the effects of which, uh, of course, are creating massive social um, problems, you know, the enormous gulf between one generation and another because prices rising rapidly in real terms, uh, enriching property owners but making it very, very difficult to get into the uh, property market. The key metric, which I always looked at, was the relationship between prices and earnings and Roughly now, um, we're about twice the historic norm, um, certainly in big cities like London, also Oxford and Cambridge, you're three or four times the historic norm. An enormous gap between affordability and um, median income. Now, this is, of course, a big social issue. It's an issue between generations and between classes. But from an economic point of view, it creates another problem that investment is increasingly being channeled into property. And the way that the banks operate, for example, is that they will now lend almost exclusively against property because they want collateral and they regard 
appreciating property as a very good source of collateral. It's very difficult for companies to get credit against intellectual property, against orders. It has to be against property. And the, the banking sector is now overwhelmingly geared to the property market. And this is kind of building in, arguably, I think the Bank of England is becoming increasingly concerned about this systemic risk. But it's also distorting lending towards activities in the property market rather than, arguably, more productive forms of activity. Let me just finish with a, a, a final thought that one of the issues we sort of grappled with in governments and, and that we weren't the first to do so is the issue about how you get, um, in terms of the relationship between government and business, a long-term perspective. I, I commissioned um, Professor John Kay, who some, somebody, some of you will know of, to look at this whole problem of short-termism in equity markets, principally concerned by the fact that the main financial intermediaries, pension funds, insurance companies, have a very rapid churn in their assets and their whole incentive structure of bonuses is geared to promoting that, making it very difficult for companies uh, to think long-term. So if you're a company like Rolls-Royce or BA Systems or... Uh, Airbus or whatever, and you've got to make 20, 30-year planning decisions, very, very difficult to do that against a background in which the equity markets are judging you on short-term profitability performance. And we tried in government to address that problem in a variety of ways. One was the creation of an industrial strategy, uh, which involves collaboration with the private sector in areas like aerospace, the motor car industry, uh, bioscience, also some service sectors like the creative industries, where we sat down collaboratively working with these industries over their long-term planning horizon and what they need in terms of skill development, support for innovation, and helping to create much more of a long-term framework. I sense this government probably don't have the same level of commitment, but the structures are still there. Um, we also managed to change the terms of reference of the takeover panel, which is an independent body, but they, we made it very clear what we wanted them to do. Uh, and uh, partly as a consequence of that, the, um, the Pfizer takeover, which you may remember, of AstraZeneca was, became much more difficult. We changed the terms of reference of the uh, competition authorities, the CMA, uh, and, and also got the Law Commission to create a definition of uh, director's responsibility which built in long-term considerations. And I think probably in conclusion, I would say that probably the biggest challenge in getting um, government and business to think about productivity growth is to inject this, this long-term perspective. You know, the, the political time horizon is a maximum of five years. You're dealing with a 24-hour rolling news cycle. Yet for many industries... Um, it, you have to think 10, 20, 30, 40 years ahead if you're developing new renewable technology, if you're developing a you know, new transport system. You, you need to have much longer time horizons than the markets or the politicians will normally allow. And I think that, in many ways, is one of the biggest challenges we have. Anyway, thank you for your attention. Happy to take it.
Uh, well, thank you very much, Vince. Um, let me introduce our next speaker, um, Dan Coyle, OBE, who is a professor of economics. So, professor, yeah, professor of economics at the University of Manchester. She was vice chairman of the BBC Trust until April of this year and uh, has been on uh, many uh, advisory committees like uh, the Migration Advisory Commission, the Competition Commission. Uh, I should say she is also the author of a fantastic book on GDP, which I hope she talks a little bit about now. And most importantly, she's also on the uh, Centre for Performance Policy Committee, so I hope she's officially one of my bosses. So, <laughs> Diane Coyle. Thank you very much, John. Um, it's the moment you've all been waiting for. We're going to talk about growth accounting. Um, But it's after six o'clock, so there are no equations. Don't worry about it. But I thought I'd just say a bit about um, what we mean when we talk about productivity. What on earth is it? And the answer is, we're talking about growth and output per worker, and it depends on three things. It's going to depend on how much more capital per worker there is. So I've got a picture of a spade instead of an equation, and there's some extra capital. This construction worker's got a bulldozer instead of a spade. It's going to depend on human capital per worker or skills. So rather than uh, people not being in education for very long and not attaining high levels of skills, so this is a young girl working in a cotton mill, um, I don't know when exactly, late 19th century, we've got uh, much more educated people sitting down working with computers. And then we've got uh, what's technically called total factor productivity growth. So if you've got exams in economics to do still, call it that. But it's kind of magic fairy dust where we put everything else that isn't in the first two things. Now, already you can see it's a little bit complicated. This is very intuitive. This is what you would expect output per worker to depend on. But rather than drawing one spade and then 20 spades, I've given you one spade and then a bulldozer because uh, innovation is embedded in capital. When firms invest in new capital, they're actually investing in part of the innovation as well. And it's having the bulldozer that makes the worker able to dig out many more construction sites. And the equipment that my two um, uh, humans are working with, they've got higher levels of skills because they're working with different kinds of equipment. So it's complicated, and measuring um, all of these elements is very difficult in practice for all of these reasons. But but the intuition is pretty obvious, so that's what we're talking about. And here's why we're very disappointed. So this is a chart from the Office for National Statistics showing UK productivity is that very flat purple line since the financial crisis. And the uh, high purple line is what um, it would have been if we'd continued our previous trend in labour productivity. And so that's why everybody's getting a bit worried about it. So from what we saw before, this could be because of weak investment by companies, and it has been a somewhat disappointing investment performance. A lot of companies are giving money back to shareholders rather than investing in productive activities. It could be weak skills investment, which Vince was just talking about, and that's something that we've worried about for some time in the UK. I'm not sure we're more worried about it post-2007 than we were before. It's a long-standing issue in the UK education system. And then it could be that there's not been enough magic fairy dust. And there are lots of things that go into that. Very often people think that's just about innovation. And um, I forgot to put it on the list. It is about innovation. And one of the debates at the moment in economics is about... um, a secular stagnation, so-called, part of which is the hypothesis that the pace of innovation has greatly slowed down compared to what it used to be. So Robert Gordon at Northwestern is most associated with that view. 
And he says that the really big innovations were things that happened in the 20th century. It was things like the invention of the automobile or indoor sanitation that had dramatic effects on the quality of people's life. And the kinds of stuff that we're talking about now, playing Angry Birds on your mobile phone, although that's probably very old-fashioned now, is, is not really going to contribute to productivity in the same way. Now, I think that's highly implausible myself because it takes a very narrow focus on uh, what the technological change is all about and also what it's being adopted to do. So the argument focuses very much on digital. There are all kinds of others like biotechnology, graphene, um, invented at the University of Manchester, of course, and others. If you look at the pace at which prices are declining in all of these innovations, um, they are simply extraordinary, and I think it's the best evidence we have that actually the pace of innovation is still very fast. And, um, uh, but that's, that's part of the debate. But then there are all these other things that might be affecting um, total, fa- total factor productivity growth as well. Um, there's a question about measuring them, which I alluded to before, and how, how clearly are we um, able to distinguish between the different components. We've got an ageing population. Maybe that's something to do with it. We've had a lot of inward migration. Maybe the skill levels of the population are different. Um, Measuring intangibles, which means things like investing in software or investing in research and development. Um, A lot of industries now uh, use much more of this kind of investment, and we don't measure it very well. well, There's a, a lot of work going on in this area, but again, perhaps there's something that we're not capturing there. Organization and management quality... So the term includes also things like the quality of the economic institutions, the competition environment, the business environment. And uh, the CEP has done fantastic work on the importance of management quality for productivity. So there are all of these possibilities. And uh, my guess would be that actually there's a bit of all of that that helps explain the wedge that's opened up in UK productivity performance. But I wanted to end my five minutes... And uh, you're in luck. I don't have a clock where I teach in Manchester, so I never know when to stop. But my students tell me two hours is plenty. I've only got five minutes this evening. Um, What is productivity in an economy that's 80% services? There's no product. What on earth are we talking about? Um, One possibility is that there are lots of newer activities going on um, that ought to be captured in GDP, in the numerator of our productivity term, but are not being... Um, One example is just a question of whether the statistics are capturing all of these activities. Is the Office for National Statistics, how is it counting things that get sold on Amazon Marketplace or eBay or um, people putting up their rooms for rent on Airbnb or even their driveways, which you can do through a sharing website now? How much of that is actually being recorded? What about all the volunteer activity? Services that are provided for free whether it's um, housework or cooking at home or reading at the primary school or volunteering in the local charity shop, don't get counted in GDP. And it's just a convention. They never have been. And uh, we've got used to that idea, although I would argue that it would be useful to count those things for social policy reasons. What about all of the new kinds of volunteer activities, like um, writing entries in Wikipedia or uh, writing open-source software like R, which a lot of people are now using? That's not getting counted either, but that's useful economic activity. We don't really have a good idea of how much of that is going on and how much of that we'd consider to be economically useful and how that would compare to the size of the gap on the previous chart. And then there's, for example, the dematerialisation of the economy that's going on because of the digital shift. 
One example the Bank of England blog gave recently was that there is much less investment in commercial property than there used to be because all those businesses that used to be on the high street, the banks, um, the travel agencies, the video rental stores, are online now, and actually even products like books or newspapers are becoming increasingly immaterial. And that can actually reduce measured GDP, and commercial property investment has at times been one of the biggest components explaining the change in GDP over time. So there are lots of questions about... Uh, these newer activities. And this is something that was raised in Sir Charles Bean's interim review on economic statistics that was published today. And I am a bit of an economic statistics anorak, but it is actually a really interesting read and um, highly recommended. Um, There are also some new kinds of um, economic dynamics in many of these digital businesses. The upfront cost of creating one of these platform sites or um, a, a large successful piece of software the upfront cost is very high, then the marginal cost is uh, very low, or nearly zero, and there's a lot of increasing returns to scale. You really want the whole world to be your market if you have this kind of business. And um, do we have a lot of that kind of business? Well, not as much as we would like. If 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 you're a zero marginal cost increasing returns economy, the answer seems to be that you're California and they've cracked it in a way that no others have. And I think thinking about productivity and long-term industrial success, we need to think about this kind of industrial strategy issue. And then finally, 80% services. What is productivity and services? It depends so much on the quality. So here's my example. Here's a nurse. Is she more productive if she gets through uh, uh, 50 patients a day uh, very quickly or only five patients a day, but cares for them well, and they get better faster? And the answer to that is, it depends. If you've got somebody doing blood tests, you want them done as many as possible on a production line. And if you've got somebody caring for an elderly, possibly terminally ill person, or somebody who'll benefit from that kind of intensive care, then you want them to have as few patients as possible, but much better outcomes. And there's no way of distinguishing between that in the statistics. Um, this is true of a lot of government services, but it's also true of a lot of private sector services as well. If you run a consultancy, a lawyer, software programming, in all of these kinds of services, which are now such a large part of the economy, the quality of the output matters more than the quantity of the output, and we don't have, we just don't have a good way of thinking about that. So I'm going to stop there and hand over to um, Romanus, I think. Thank you very much, Diane. So, uh, Bronwyn Curtis, our next speaker, she is a global financial markets economist and she's a member of LSE's Court of Governors. She's a non executive director of JP Morgan Asian Investment Trust and uh, she was also head of global research at HSBC and managing editor of the European Broadcast at uh, Bloomberg. So, over to you. Thank you very much, John. Well, I'm going to follow on with some of the things that Diane, pick up on some of the things that Diane has talked about. But I do think that I have to say economics is a pretty dismal science, isn't it? I mean, we we didn't pick up the global financial crisis. Well, most people didn't um, until it was upon us. And now we can't understand why productivity hasn't picked up um, in the way that we would have thought or hoped. So I'm going to take some examples from my own experience pre- and post-crisis and just sort of, I'm not suggesting I can solve any of the problems, but I just thought that some of them were quite nice insights. I mean, as Diane said, services are nearly 80% of the economy, so it's productivity in the service sector that we really need to explain. 
And that's the same in most advanced countries. Um, And productivity improvements, when you think about it, are inherently more difficult in the service sector than in the manufacturing sector where you can get much bigger economies of scale. It's not true, of course, if you've got an app that you know, everyone wants, as you said, and, you know, the zero cost going forward, so you can do extremely well. Um, But generally, I think the move towards services is a good thing as long as the absolute level of productivity is higher in services. I mean, in value-added terms, I'm talking about the manufacturing. And as a great deal of the competition in services is local rather than international, productivity in the service sector often will be higher than manufacturing um, in those terms. But that's starting to change, and it's accelerated since the financial crisis, although I don't think that it's it's related. Um, International competition's been introduced in a number of service sectors in the UK. Think Uber, Amazon, Aldi or Lidl. It's driving down the value added in those sectors, as well as consumer prices, which is great for the consumer. But, you know, in terms of added value and growth, it's uh, much tougher. Now, I just looked at the example of taxis and other private hire vehicles. The number of taxis and private hire vehicles and driver licences hit record levels in the UK in 2015. And the largest increase was in private hire vehicles in London between 2013 and 2015. They rose by just under 63,000, which is an increase of about 26%. Now, I'm glad they're not all on the road at the same time because things are tough enough driving in London. But if you look at it, the number of people employed has gone up much more than demand. So value added and real wages must have been driven down. And... to say nothing of the externalities of having clogged up roads. This isn't a UK-specific issue, but as an open, globalised economy, it's much more susceptible to international competition, including digital changes. Corporate investment is another area that's been weak across the advanced economies post-crisis. And there's been quite a lot of academic research looking at it and some people would describe it as impaired capital allocation noting that capital hasn't moved towards the sectors with the highest rates of return and there was a 2014 study by Barnett and some others using ONS firm level data from the annual business survey and the authors found that the positive correlation between profitability and investment weakened significantly after the financial crisis Now, some of the work that John has done has been very helpful in this respect because I'll try and summarise it quickly, but the drop in real wages has changed the relationship between the cost of labour and capital. Capital costs have actually gone up, making labour relatively more attractive in the UK than in other advanced economies. But I think there are other more mundane reasons as well. In recent years... Companies have changed the way they invest, so it depends on what you mean by investment. It may just reflect changes in the investment spend, so you're not 
capturing it when you collect investment data, when the ONS or other statistical agencies collect investment data. Many companies have switched, for example, their investment into areas like revenue investment. I had to ask what this was when someone told me about it. By that, they mean discounting on services and products to gain market share. So that's like the cheap online insurance policy, and they hope they'll spend money on... Actually, might make a loss on that the first year, hoping that you're a sticky customer and you'll just sign up again in the second year. And revenue investing can take other forms as well. So things like competition to supply, and I haven't got a good example, but I think about aircraft engines. Perhaps the competition's really fierce, and you really can't make a profit out of that, selling aircraft engines. So you might sell those at a loss, but you make your money out of the servicing, and that servicing will actually, that activity may not be booked in the UK and where, or the country where the engines are made. So I think also if we're being UK-specific here, you can't ignore the, the financial sector. And I think Vince talked about it quite succinctly. I mean, post-crisis, the financial sector has become much less productive, but hopefully this is coming to an end. I just look back, and in the years before the financial crisis, uh, Joseph Ackerman, who was the CEO of Deutsche Bank between 2002 and 2012, repeatedly said he would like to aim to achieve a return on equity of 25% before taxes, his idea of a well-performing bank. Now banks are making sub-10% returns on capital. They can't leverage their capital in the same way they did before the crisis, but they still need people to run the businesses. They've also had to employ a raft of less productive people for regulation, compliance, cyber security and a host of things. Not making judgments about whether the choices governments have made on regulation are good or bad, I'm just pointing out that the value banks are adding to the economy is significantly less. And there's one other thing that post-crisis I think is quite important, and Diane touched on, and that's the quality of management. I mean, management attention was diverted from improving the efficiency of basic operations and revenues, and at a time when just when business models were changing too. So in banking, developments like peer-to-peer -peer lending and digital banking are coming on stream. Banks aren't looking at that. They've been focused on jockeying for jobs, regulation, compliance, managing the media fallout. And I think that this has made it quite difficult um, because it's such a big sector in the UK. Should it be as big? I think, in retrospect, the answer is no. But you do need something else to replace it. Now, George Osborne's aim is to reduce the government sector to 35% from 50% when he first took office by 2020. If he can do that, then of course, and if the um, private sector can rise to the challenges, that will be much more effective and more productive. But that's quite a lot to achieve in a short amount of time. Thank you, Thank you very much. Well, our final uh, speaker is Anna Leach. Uh, Anna is the head of e the economic analysis team at the uh, CBI. She oversees the quarterly global macro forecasts uh, across the UK. She's been there since 2008. Um, prior to that, she was in the fiscal team. And before that, uh, she worked on macroeconomic analysis of the Treasury and as a labour econ economist at the Department of Work and Pensions. So over to you, Anna. 
Thank you. Um, many interesting points have been made by previous speakers. Hopefully I won't overlap too much. I'll just talk a little bit um, at the beginning about where we are at the moment. So the UK's recovery seems relatively well entrenched at the moment. We've seen um, quite decent growth in GDP and CBI published our latest economic forecast at the beginning of November and we see reasonable growth being maintained over the next few years, so between 2.4 and 2.6%, which is around um, old trend growth rates, which is not too bad at all given the kind of financial crisis we've been through. Um, but we're still left with the productivity puzzle. So we've got GDP about... 6.4% above pre-crisis peak, um, unemployment back to 5.3%, employment rate at a record high, um, employment about 5% above pre-crisis peak. Growth in the UK is quite balanced domestically, which is quite good in terms of the resilience of growth in, in case there are any future shocks. And we did see a bit of market instability in the summer around the growth outlook for China, but not much growth um, support from the external side. Um, but in the midst of sort of positive news on the domestic front, although, inv I mean, thinking of investment in particular, um, that's actually sort of punched above its weight um, in terms of its contribution to GDP growth, perhaps still not to the extent one would like, um, but still sort of looking at a quarter to a third of GDP growth over our forecast horizon, which is not at all bad, given that it's usually around 10% of GDP. But productivity, as has already been mentioned, is essentially flatlined um, since the crisis. It's only about, it's just nudged above its pre-crisis peak now. Um, so it's now 0.4% higher than it was pre-crisis. But if you look at where it would have been had productivity grown um, at, at its trend rate prior to the crisis, productivity, the level of productivity would be some sort of 14% higher now. Um, and again, as already been mentioned, productivity is sort of crucial to um, living standards, crucial underpin to earnings growth. Um, and there's that excellent quote, you know, productivity isn't everything in isn't the only thing, but in the long run, it's almost everything. Um, so there are a few theories which are fairly well rehearsed as to what's been um, holding back productivity in the UK since the crisis. One of them is the um, extent of labour supply growth. Um, we've seen very high net migration, um, an increase in older people participation in the workforce, and this is obviously, will obviously have depressed um, the cost of labour, make it relatively attractive, um, and all these new entrants into the workforce will start off at the beginning with relatively lower productivity. Um, combine that with factors pushing up the relative cost of capital, um, such as um, increases in the cost of capital following the financial crisis, lower availability of capital, um, and you end up with a sort of a skew in favour of um, labour supply growth, perhaps rather above and beyond what one would normally see. We've also seen um, sort of greater uncertainty, weak demand playing a role in terms of business investment demands, um, the sort of option value of holding off investment today to see what happens tomorrow certainly rose very significantly during the crisis and is pretty elevated today as well. Um, another factor which has been touched on as well is the role of capital misallocation. Um, 
in the productivity story. So there's a view that um, the low interest rate situation that we are currently in, the role that bank forbearance has played, perhaps not quite wanting to address cleaning up their balance sheets, um, has meant that we've got a tale of lower productivity firms still in operation who might otherwise have gone out of business, um, holding back aggregate productivity levels. Also, the other impact of that is that capital is not available for new firms, emergent firms, um, with higher productivity. Um, Diane's already touched on the issue of measurement. The economy is changing fast. 80% services, are we really capturing um, what's going on in the economy? And that's definitely going to be playing a role. Um, the, the issue of the measurement of GDP has been a long-standing challenge for the ONS, certainly in terms of trying to un- understand the um, business investment story from GDP, which is obviously crucial to the productivity agenda. It's quite difficult when business investment data gets revised up and down to very significant degrees. And something that we've looked at at the CBI is um, what the firm experience actually is in the productivity puzzle. Now, as you might expect, if you ask a firm... Um, why their productivity is low. Um, they have no idea what you're talking about. Um, but if you ask them what their experience is in trying to get credit, whether their uncertainty levels are higher than pre-crisis, whether they're more risk-averse than they were pre-crisis, um, then they do have something um, a little bit more meaty to talk about. Um, so we did a bit of a ring round with some of our members. I, should, I meant to say this at the beginning. I mean, for those of you who don't know, um, the Confederation of Business... Um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Confederation of British Industry is a membership organisation. Um, so, and we, we speak on behalf of about 190,000 businesses of all sizes, all sectors across the economy. So we've got quite a, a rich um, um, body that we can speak to on these issues. Um, obviously, our financial services members, as you would expect, um, talk very much about the regulatory environment, the role that Um, the shift of workers from those sort of high-risk, high-profit areas to um, regulation regulation specialisation has had in terms of their near-term profitability. Um, And those specialists in regulation are few and far between and expensive. Um, So that's definitely playing a significant role in terms of depressing the output of the financial services sector. And there are significant issues anyway in respect of the measurement of output from that sector as well, which we playing a big role. But some other interesting sectors are also, um, have also um, got some developments going on which will have affected their measured productivity. So we spoke to um, some members of the distribution sector, specifically within transport um, and storage, and they spoke um, a great deal about the impact that regulatory changes have had within their sector. So th- there were changes to... Um, the licensing of their drivers, which meant that a lot of older workers in that sector chose to take early retirement and were very difficult to replace. And they've actually had to replace them with fewer, lower-skilled workers, which obviously reduces their productivity. That was quite an interesting one. The construction sector was another interesting one where productivity is quite volatile and is beset with measurement um, difficulties um, and a very big challenge for the ONS. Um, And they're experiencing skill shortages throughout the skill spectrum from low skill to high skill, which is inhibiting their ability to conduct business. Um, 
they've benefited slightly from, late, from the strong growth in labour supply, but perhaps not to the extent they would have liked. Um, they're certainly having to work hard to win contracts, and that's sort of a whole economy um, feature that we've had since the crisis, this idea that you're having to put a lot more effort into um, your work, but it's just not delivering the same bang for the, for the buck that it did prior to the crisis. Um, I won't talk too much more about the other sectors that we talked to because I think those were the most interesting ones. Um, in terms of, I mean, the brief for this was um, you know, productivity, the future of the workforce. Um, I think it's right that technological developments are continuing at a pretty brisk pace, actually. Um, there's some evidence that the pace is so brisk that some firms are being left behind. The OECD are looking at this at the moment. They're interested in the fact that frontier firms have maintained their productivity performance through the crisis, whereas the rest of the um, firms have been left behind. So they're very concerned about the dispersion of innovation um, between and among firms and and within sectors. And that is certainly um, an interesting component of the innovation role played in productivity debate. Obviously, um, the role that technology can play in terms of the productivity story is it can both augment or replace um, labour, and it will be crucial that um, skills continue to evolve to support um, the role of the workforce alongside these rapid developments, and has already been mentioned, the role of um, uh, non-academic skill sets um, in this will be crucial. The solution, a mix of business, act, business and government activity. We need more investment, more innovation, more R&D, more training. There's work that both business and government can do in this space. And I'll end there. So we're going to turn over to the audience in just a minute. I just want to give Vince a chance if he wants to respond to any points. I'd like to just ask one question, a policy-related uh, question, which I was very struck when you were speaking and also reading your book um, over a couple of things which I can fundamentally agree with, which is that you know, one of the problems we have in this country is insufficient investment in um, public investment in infrastructure. And we've seen this very vividly, I think, both, I'd say, in the first half of the coalition period, uh, where there was very large cuts of public investments, and also, as you said, going forward with the absurd, to my, my mind, you know, target to reach a surplus on the total, on to- the total budget, including investment expenditure. There's no, no basis in economic logic at all, which will continue the, you know, de- you know, the depression of... Uh, of public investment. And it, it also struck me that relates to the longer-term issues of you know, how we kind of pull things together to get a proper kind of strategic plan to improve our productivity along all the lines that people have been talked about. And it, it seemed from your book and what you were speaking about, you know, the role of the Treasury is quite, has been uh, quite influential in, in those dimensions, making it harder both in terms of the you know, the shorter-run thing on, you know, in terms of debates over austerity and investment and the longer-run question over improving the supply side. And my question is, what can we do about that? I mean, you, when you were Secretary of State, seemed to try to do quite a lot of things on having some type of industrial strategy bringing people together. Are we just going to rely on individuals being in the Department of Business to do things, or is there something more central and structural we could do in the way that we 
have our institutions in, in government. So, I, you know, I wonder what your thoughts are on that, yeah. or other well, people. Well, I think in terms of having a, a proper balance between short-term cash flow management, which is since what the Treasury does, uh, and long-term economic consideration, long-term investment, uh, I think you need to have checks and balances in government. And uh, although I'm not you know, instinctively in favour of building up government bureaucracies, I mean, the, the, there is a very powerful argument, I think, for having a government department that is a suitable counterweight to the economy, and that was the conclusion Michael Heseltine came to when he was uh, in the Thatcher era, uh, and Peter Mandelson under the Labour government, um, both of whom built up the department that I inherited. Uh, and I think it, it, is, it is very important to have a wing of government which has self-confidence, uh, good economists, uh, an ability to argue back with the Treasury, which, you know, a lot of the people in the Treasury are extraordinarily clever. I mean... We have two members, the Treasury uh, mandarins on the panel. Yes, <laughs> yes, well, indeed. I mean, they're extraordinarily clever people, but um, institutionally arrogant and very short-term in the way they tend to think about things. And uh, I, I, that, I, that's why I do, I do think the structure of government is, is important in order to, to counter that. And this wasn't just an issue, actually, in the coalition years. I mean, throughout the Golden Brown era, there was this, you know, terrible reticence about the, the public sector balance sheet, the reason why we got into PFI. I mean, often some good PFI projects, but very, very expensive forms of financing were used in order to avoid putting things on the public sector balance sheet, not in an economically rational way. The cuts in capital spending, which you're quite right, I mean, our government did serious damage, actually, but it started before us. I mean, when, when Alistair Darling started under the last Labour government from dealing with the public borrowing problem, as it was seen, uh, capital spending took the first big hit. You know, and, and governments do this, um, and it, it, it does stem, I think, I mean, I've argued this with top-level officials in the Treasury, they, they, they do not believe that the government has a useful role to play. And I think it goes back to a kind of theoretical framework before the crisis when you had what was called a crowding-out problem, that if government borrows to invest, it must be crowding out private investors. But in the current macro environment, that is not... That's not a meaningful way of looking at the world, but that's the mental apparatus that they have. Okay, so there's roving mics, and uh, people make themselves available to ask questions. Please. Could could you, when you ask questions, could you say who you are and also make your questions not too long, given the time constraints? Bernard Casey from London School of Economics. Um, A question both to Vince and to Diana. Um, Diana talked about... um, productivity equals output per worker, and then she produced a graph which had output per hour worked. So I wonder whether one could comment upon um, the implications for productivity, A, of the enormous growth of zero hours working, and possibly the growth of a large amount of unproductive self-employment in recent years. With respect to Vincent, um, the question about... um, further education, vocational education. There was a government which set quantitative apprenticeships targets, 
It was, com- it was uh, quantity rather than quality. And I wondered whether you could comment upon the autumn statement and the apprenticeship levy and its contribution or absence of one. Yeah. Okay, so Diane, do you want to go first and then? Um, yes, I should have put, uh, put our work on the first slide as well. And you obviously need to make the adjustment because if people are uh, consuming more leisure, that has no meaningful um, implications. Um, but actually, we own a bit of a statistical fog about uh, how, how, many, how many zero hours are being worked, if you see what I mean. I, I think we just can't answer that question. Similarly, we have n- too little information about what the self-employed uh, people are doing and whether it's um, super productive people writing software by themselves and, or creating the next top game, or whether it's people who um, are just struggling along in a not very buoyant economy. Well, just, I think, a good question about apprenticeships. Um, I mean, quality is more difficult to measure than quantity. So for politicians who are trying to demonstrate that they're improving performance, there is a natural attraction to having quantitative targets. But the, the, the way in which it was beginning to be reformed, certainly when I was there, um, and I hope is continuing, is, I mean, the, way, the way to deal with the quality issue in part is to concentrate on higher-level apprenticeships, which are sort of degree equivalent, because that's where most of the labor market surveys show there are the biggest problems. Uh, con- you know, helping somebody to get, say, a level two qualification in retail may not be very adding very much to the productivity of the economy, but getting a... Um, a skilled engineer up to degree equivalent through a skills qualification almost certainly is. So I think the first answer is that you improve quality uh, by moving up the, the skill level, skill level four and above. Um, in terms of the apprenticeship levy, I mean, the principle is, is sort of good economics. I mean, you, at least in theoretical terms, because there is a big externality from um, training that raises productivity and you also have free riders who would not normally invest in training but leave leave it to other companies so you levy everybody and then you rebate the companies that actually do the training I mean that's the simple model that that one would employ now the reason this government has got itself into difficulty is that they have a separate policy objective which is to lift the burden of charges and regulation from small companies so they want to exempt small companies from the apprenticeship levy. The problem is it's the small companies that do the free riding. Um, most large companies um, you know, do you know, sufficient for their own needs and actually produce skills for the market at large. So the reason why the CBI and other organizations are getting quite angry about the apprenticeship levy is that their members are paying twice in other words, they pay for their own training and they're paying for the rest of the economy. And the, the, uh, the smaller, medium-sized companies, up to, I think, 200 <coughs> employees, I think that's the cut-off point, uh, are in fact free-riding on the system. Three million, Three million turnover. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yes, there's a question from the gentleman there. Hi there. Uh, Great talk. Thank you very much. Um, My name is Jamie, um, and my question is... Let me take the question, and then I'll explain kind of what I mean by the question. Um, Briefly, though. (laughs) So the 
my question is, what is the role of the government in kind of helping the private sector firms to understand micro-productivity at the firm level? And this kind of touches on the point around measurement. So what I mean by that is I'm, I'm a strategy innovation consultant in management consulting by, by occupation. We help large FTSE 100 organizations deal with the changing disruptive world. Now, that in effect is what is the return on investment of innovation that they need to put in? What resources do they need to allocate towards innovating and keeping up with the world? How do they measure the return on that innovation and those resources? And especially when a lot of the innovation comes in business model. So they get earned and they pay, or they get paid for the value they create in very different ways now because the business models are different. To your point earlier around, um, for example, people launching services and wanting to monetize the data that is collected on customers, for example. Think NPower with Nest and Google. I'm not sure how they're going to monetize the data, but they're waiting to figure out a way of monetizing data. So coming back to the question is firms don't really understand how to measure their own productivity in this changing world. And I wonder if it's not a first step to say how, do we, how does the government help firms individually figure out the right sort of what sort of management accounting structures to figure out the value of the investment they make in innovation before thinking about the macro level, if that makes sense. So I, I think the question is around um, how can we help firms make measure their productivity better? Um, and is it possible? Anna, do you want to um, go at that one? Yeah, I can have a stab at that. Um, I think you perhaps um, are slightly over-optimistic about the capability of government here. Um, <laughs> Um, so I'm, I'm not sure how much they can help firms in this space because government is quite resource-constrained. Um, I mean, yes, um, businesses do struggle to um, quantify the potential benefits from investment and the potential impact on productivity. Um, there's a review going on at the moment actually being led by Charlie Mayfield looking at the role that firms can play in driving productivity growth in the UK. Um, so in that sense, there is, you know, there's a sort of structure in place there for um, government and business to talk to each other about um, productivity. Um, <coughs> yes, I mean, it's say that what, what can the government do in that space? I mean, mainly it is provide some kind of financial support um, for innovation R&D because there's there is plenty of evidence suggesting that they actually crowd in um, corporate investment in this area. Um, and so you know, protecting and supporting the budgets, the funding of those kind of um, government spending areas is quite important. Danny, you want to say something? Very briefly, I think it's much easier for businesses, actually. Uh, the first question is, what is your purpose as a business? What's going to make you absolutely compelling to your customers so they want you and nobody else? And I fear that our purpose is to monetize data is not going to do it. And, and then the other is, everybody talks about being a people business, but are your people really valuable to you? Will you pay them good wages, give them decent working conditions, in which case they're going to deliver the services that your customers are going to really want? I think your, your question raised a couple of quite important policy issues that we grappled with in government. The first is, if you're trying to encourage innovation in business, do you do it by general tax reliefs or do you do it by selective intervention and subsidy and support? Um, the, the, the Chancellor you know, had a very strong preference for tax relief 
Um, and you could argue that you know this is less distorting. But of course, the R&D tax credits, which cost three billion, I think, something like that a year, far more than the government spends supporting innovation directly, have an enormous deadweight cost. You know, a lot of that investment would happen anyway, right? So th there is a, there is an argument against the general tax relief approach to innovation, and the approach I supported was more interventionist, and it followed more the German model of adapting in the UK the Fraunhofer system, whereby um, you know the government establishes centres that are co-financed, one-third business, one-third government, one-third universities, actually. Uh, and the purpose of that is to take the process of scientific discovery much closer to business. And we've established now this chain of catapults around the country, advanced manufacturing, uh, cell therapy, uh, stratified medicine, satellite applications, new renewables. One of my um, you know, big reliefs after the autumn statement was that the government has seen the value of this and they're not axing it. But the, quest the issue question is, do you want to go down that route, the interventionist route, or the general tax relief? The other big question is, is it more sensible for government to invest in blue-sky science or to invest in innovation, more downstream, more directly related to business. And the traditional view has always been uh, it's fine for government to invest in science, and certainly under our coalition, the Chancellor and was very keen on all that stuff, protected the science budget. Innovation, which all the research, as I've seen, shows a much higher rate of return to the economy, uh, has traditionally been regarded as less favorably. And I tried to reverse that. But, but there is an important question. You know, do you support science or innovation or both? And in what combination? Does it, I, just, can uh, I just make uh, a, sure. a, a quick um, answer on this? I think, well, first of all, I think companies are, are, are better at innovating. But this long-term, short-term issue that you brought up earlier in terms of the companies, the private companies that I've worked for have always been prepared to take more risk and innovate rather than the public companies because the public ones are much more looking at the short term and therefore need incentives to do things like innovate. So that's when I think the government has to get involved and it's usually through the sorts of things you were talking about. Okay, I'm going to take a couple of questions so people get a chance. There's a lady at the front here with a question. Hi, thank you. First of all, I want to say that I'm wearing two pairs of glasses because I have a visual problem, not because I'm eccentric. <laughs> um, I'm, my name is Susan. I'm a social historian. Um, and what I seem to be running into more and more and more are two problems when I try to get anything done, a lack of accountability, personal accountability, and a lack of critical thinking. And so while there may be innovations in all of this, when you're on the ground trying to get something done, and a somebody from some company or medical or whatever it is, is you have to spend 30 hours undoing somebody else's mistake. And this happens more and more and more and over and over, and you can't get a straight yes or no answer to a yes or no question. What has happened from the very basic to critical thinking 
to that sense of accountability that somebody working for a company, instead of spending 15 hours on the phone undoing their mistakes, can figure out how not to make those mistakes in the first place and have a bit of accountability about it. And I think that's affecting productivity where I see it tremendously and affecting the population. Okay. Uh, There's a gentleman over there in uh, the blue, slightly blue shirt and glasses. Uh, Thank you. My name is Richard Neller. Uh, I've enjoyed listening to everyone speaking. It strikes me that the level of analysis here is, you know, pretty comprehensive. I think we we know what the issues are. It's just sort of seeing the wood for the trees. And I suspect that, you know, the LSE business review, working in conjunction with the government, can have a, you know, a guiding, nudging business and the economy in the right direction. One thing that I don't think was touched on was the level of... uh, the scientific and mathematical teaching and, and that base within high schools. So it'd be interesting to hear the, the panel's opinion on, on, on that. Okay, let's take one more. There's somebody right at the back there. I haven't known many people at the back. So in the jacket on the right. Hi, thanks very much for the interesting discussion. My name's uh, Edward Corcoran. I just something that was slightly conspicuous to me in its absence. Um, At the summer budget, the government uh, released a productivity plan which touched on a number of the elements that you've you've raised, and I just wondered if the panel sort of didn't mention it because they thought that it didn't go far enough, or whether it's something that um, they think is actually helping to address some of the issues that they they brought up. Okay, I'll take one more, because a patient person on the left-hand side over there, you you had your hand up, didn't you? No? Yes? Okay. I just said I'm a low-level Treasury official. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I just think we touched on a few areas. I just wondered what happened to you or some sort of more SMEs. We talked about private sector and collecting to them, but Okay, so we have a question on the role of SMEs. One is the government is the government's productivity plan fit for purpose. One on STEM and one on accountability. Uh, who wants to go first? Don't do a rush. I'll do accountability, shall I? It's a very interesting question. If you look at the uh, micro-literature on productivity in firms when they adopt information and communication technologies, there are two kinds that improve their productivity a lot. And as, as Anna said, there's great dispersion in firms' productivity performance. One kind that does really well is the Walmart kind, where they take away all decision-making authority from their employees and they become uh, little robots in themselves. But the investment in the information technology in the logistics is absolutely massive, and that delivers huge productivity gains. I think Walmart was a quarter of the US productivity growth or something extraordinary like that at one stage. And then the others are firms where they take advantage of the decentralizing opportunity provided by the technologies to actually give decision-making responsibility to their employees. And so 
they have access to all kinds of information and the responsibility and decision-making is pushed out. And if you don't do one of those things, then I think you get the kind of thing that you're talking about where the system's not very good and nobody's got any power to make any decisions and you run into this sort of bureaucratic Kafkaesque nightmare when you're dealing with, with any company and I certainly recognise what you're talking about. On, I mean, uh, Vince, I mean, the productivity plan, uh, Chris Giles and the FT made the comment that uh, you know, the productivity plan's moved from, I think, the seven drivers that Gordon Brown had to, like, 14 or 15 drivers. So there's an increase in the productivity in terms of the number of drivers and nothing else. What, what did you think of it in terms of uh, your, your priorities? Well, I, I don't think it added anything, but I, I, I would say that, wouldn't I? That, because we, we, you know, we'd created a framework in the five years in government for dealing with this and reinventing the, the policy didn't seem terribly helpful. I think the one thing that they, they, they're majoring on, and I'm not sure how this drives productivity, but it's clearly relevant indirectly, is, they, it is changing the planning system. And I think there's probably an undue reliance on freeing up planning controls as a mechanism of um, driving productivity in the UK. Clearly, it's relevant to housing, but there are many other things that are holding back the supply of housing, including the the rather complex operation of the land market, um, the lack of credit for builders, uh, lack of skills in the industry, and many other things. But, you know, to the extent to which... Um, the new productivity plan makes a, a drive on that. I can't quarrel with it. In terms of one or two of the other points, the, the mathematics issue, I think government has got maths. I mean, you know, when Mr. Gove was my opposite number in the Department of Education, we heard about little else but English and maths, and every child in Britain has now got English and maths being bashed into their skulls, whether they like it or not. I mean, there is, a, there is a danger that this perfectly legitimate concentration on an area where Britain seriously underperforms um, can become a bit of a fetish. I mean, it was actually getting in the way of having a sensible approach to vocational education of kids who are not very capable. You know, people who leave school at 16 have got no GCSEs. They're, you're trying to get them into some vocational occupation, being a bricklayer or whatever. And under the new rules, of course, you can't become a qualified apprentice in bricklaying unless you've got GCSE maths and English. Uh, and so you know, you've got these kids who just cannot cope, and they'll just drop out and, you know, I don't know, whatever they do, pedal drugs on the street or whatever the alternatives are. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, th- there is a danger of a perfectly genuine wish to raise standards, you know, becoming rigid and obsessive and unhelpful. I just want to make one final comment, which is about the question at the front, which is a very good question, which is how do you introduce critical thinking into companies? It's also applies to government, but how do you apply critical thinking in companies? And I, I've got two suggestions based on my own experience. I mean, the first was, was Shell, actually, which is very good at self-critical thinking, which is you have a system of scenario planning. You have, you're constantly challenging your top management with ideas that they don't want to hear, things that could happen. Um, and, and, and actually we had what was more or less a sort of an in-house university, a multidisciplinary team who was the job it was to think of challenging uh, ideas that company strategy has to confront. Uh, the other is very simple, which is diversity. 
Um, one of the main reasons I pushed very heavily, and it was a cross-government thing, to get more women on the boards of top companies was to have people with a different approach to problems. Um, and lack of diversity, whether it's gender, ethnicity, or whatever, is often a recipe for very single-minded but often wrong thinking and uncritical thinking. So diversity helps with that. Can I just um, pick up on personal accountability as well? Because I think in big companies now, there is so much regulation around what you can say and do or if not regulation, companies, because they don't want to be seen to make mistakes. And I think that it, it, it stops people actually thinking. You know, if, if the answer's not in their little book or on their computer, then, you know, there is no answer. You know, actually getting someone to solve a problem, I think, is much more difficult. Um, just on the science and maths in high school... And we all know it's important, and you've just... Uh, but I think when you get just beyond that, I mean, you look at taking that further into universities, into sciences, whatever, um, you know, universities respond to demand, and a lot of the demand is around things like media, journalism, drama. So those, creative industries. Yeah. those yeah. creative industries where actually for a lot of them there aren't any jobs but they're the things that people want to do so you, you can't you, know, you have to create a culture where it's a really good thing to go and do science at maths at a higher level and it, it works but I think that culture really isn't here in Britain yeah, um, I'll just touch briefly on sort of um, a couple of issues, and I'll talk a bit, a bit, a little bit more about the role of SMEs. Um, in terms of sort of the quality of STEM teaching, I mean, companies still just talk about the quantity of STEM graduates as being a significant issue. There's a long-standing skills shortage in the manufacturing sector, in particular in this area, and there's just evidence that this um, issue has grown over time. Um, on the productivity plan, I think we'd. I mean, the CBI welcomed it. I mean, I think I would agree with Vince to a certain extent, though it hasn't necessarily added anything. It's merely sort of packaged everything together under a nice sort of umbrella term, and there's a lot of stuff in there, some good, some bad. Um, in terms of the role of SMEs in the productivity um, puzzle, um, one of the areas of government policy, which I think the CBI views as would be particularly helpful in supporting um, the SME sector is um, the, um, the extent to which the government can influence the development and delivery of more innovative financial products for SMEs, because the UK financial sector is very much tilted towards um, the banking sector, so a lot of, of finance towards smaller companies is, is, is from banks and on the basis of loans against property. Um, this is in contrast with the US, where you've got much more developed corporate bond market for smaller firms. Um, there are various views as to what's behind that. There's a view that maybe UK companies just don't look for more creative financing options. There's a view that they just aren't there. Um, there's certainly a role that government can play in incentivising that and trying to create an environment which favours longer-term um, capital availability as well. Um, it's been touched on the fact that um, there's a short-termist um, 
agenda, really, in terms of the way public corporations certainly have their results interpreted and how that skews their business practice in favour of delivering short-term, um, quarterly, usually, profitability um, mechanisms. And, I mean, the CBI um, is very keen on the government helping to develop um, a sort of saving incentive, saving programme which helps incentivize long-term saving which can help fuel um, SME lending. Thank you. So unfortunately we've run out of time but we have um, a drinks reception uh, be- uh, outside which you're all welcome to attend and I think some of the speakers will, be, will still be there so you can ask any more questions you have later. I'd just like to thank the speakers again for a really interesting and fascinating discussion and uh, I hope you come back and carry on engaging with the, the dialogue we've started here. Thank you very much.